are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are thrilled tonight we have Dr. David Sirota, an infectious disease and addiction medicine board-certified physician, joining us to discuss management of infections in patients who use drugs. All right. Yeah, we are so delighted and excited and grateful to have Dr. David Sirota on the show. It's just an honor, um, especially once we got to dig in more into what he's all about and what he does and what he has done. It's really oh, so exciting to have him on the show. In terms of an introduction, David Sirota, this is a modest introduction, by the way, in spite of what he told us. He's an in- assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Miami. He is an infectious disease and addiction medicine physician with clinical research and educational work at the intersection of infectious infectious disease and substance use. His clinical work includes providing low barrier HIV, hep C, and substance use disorder treatment through the university's syringe services program, working in an HIV primary care clinic, general infectious disease consults, and treating hospitalized patients with injection drug use associated infections. His research focus is studying interventions to improve the prevention and treatment of drug use associated infections by utilizing harm reduction and improved access to substance use disorder treatment. It just couldn't be more timely. I think those of us who work in clinical addiction medicine, infectious disease, medicine at large, gastroenterology, primary care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all face this interaction between infectious disease, substance use, medicine, the need for harm reduction. And so it's just amazing that we get to talk to you tonight. And after previewing some of the papers you've published and some of the other things you've done, David, we're really excited to talk to you tonight. So thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm really excited to be here, especially on a podcast that I listen to and I love so much and I've learned so much from. To start off, I'd say a lot of people, it's probably obvious to many of the people in the audience here, but a lot of people sort of ask you know, why is there an infectious disease doctor who's treating in addiction? I think, you know, we'll sort of go through the reasons and the, the what I think is the best approach to doing that over the course of tonight. You know, I think a lot of people end up in addiction medicine, at least in my experience, from sort of a feeling of, of helplessness in working with people suffering from substance use disorders. I think infectious disease doctors are, are especially exposed to this. You know, we see people who are experiencing um, endocarditis, bloodstream infections, you know, all of these infections that in theory, honestly, are pretty easily treatable and have a good response rate to treatment, especially in our population that's usually young and without too many other medical conditions. But I think over and over throughout my training, I just saw really utter failures of treatment. I'd say the health system failing our patients and not addressing the underlying problem that really led to the to the infection. And so I think, you know, one thing I do love about infectious disease doctors is they always love to get to the root of the problem. And, you know, that might be through addressing social determinants of health or, you know, treating someone's diabetes so they don't get diabetic foot infections. So I think that's sort of my route to get 
willing to to treat people with addiction. Okay, this can I I'm going to interrupt really quickly. Here we go. But I, so can you just give us a quick background on why you went into addiction medicine? Were you an infectious disease physician first? And then because of your interaction with all these folks with addiction related infections, you pursued that specialty? Or what's your origin story there? It was kind of late in residency. I did my internal medicine residency in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I had lived in Miami a lot of my life and went to med school in Miami. I really sort of appreciated a new and different approach to treating people with addiction when I was in Oregon. And it really made it seem like, you know, a treatable medical condition that's chronic and relapsing, as I think we're all well acquainted with that idea now. But it was really new to me then. I was already set to go to, to ID fellowship. Um, just really appreciated that approach to both ID and to primary care as well for people with HIV, which is sort of my, my other main hat. And then, um, you know, in fellowship, which I did at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, I saw a lot of patients, you know, with infections from injection drug use and kind of just picked it up along the way. You know, I, I did every like extra training I could. There's this really great training called the Fellows Immersion Training or FIT that's put on by NIDA for fellows from non-addiction specialties to sort of meet up together. And I think it was like a couple of days to just sort of learn about integrating addiction into research and clinical practice in disparate specialties. So I finished fellowship and then I started faculty at University of Miami, kind of just started treating people. And, uh, you know, I have some local folks here who have given me a lot of guidance over the years and people that I've just met across the country and at conferences. You know, I think it's kind of knowing who to turn to when you have questions. But um, yeah, it's really kind of self-taught, I guess, to some extent. I didn't do an addiction medicine fellowship. And then um, I did the practice pathway under um, ASAM to become board certified. Great. Yeah, no, thank you for telling us that. I think it's really important for people who are listening because a lot of people don't even know how to get into addiction medicine kind of more formally and that you can still do practice pathway and mentorship is so important, like you said. Great. Thank you. So thanks for that little interruption. Yeah. I'll just start kind of to to give some background about like why do people who inject drugs, which is who I'm going to be talking about primarily tonight, why do they get infections and sort of what are, how can we categorize these infections? There's a couple of ways that you can slice it. I kind of think about kind of classic syringe needle in arm related infections as sort of the the main ones that we think about. So those are the things that I really sort of focus my research and clinical care on, like endocarditis, bloodstream infections. And these are really infections related to, you know, a needle going into tissue, causing damage. It can either cause sort of a local infection that spreads systemically, or if someone injects something contaminated directly into their bloodstream, that's sort of another sort of pathophysiology of of these infections. And then aside from those infections that we think about very often, the other ones that we think about all the time are the chronic viral infections like hepatitis B, C, and HIV. And those are also, I'd say, it's, it's a little bit hard to tease out exactly whether the infection came from a syringe or from something in the other category that I'm about to get to. For hep C, probably most of it is from actual syringe sharing rather than than sex and other sort of exposures. And I think the other kind of group is this sort of life circumstances that are associated with people who inject drugs. You know, people who are exchanging sex for drugs or people who are engaging in chemsex. And so STIs can be, you know, present in this population. There was sort of a, a recent paper, I think, in MMWR a couple months or maybe years ago now about the rise of syphilis among people with substance use disorder. And 
And then the other kind of main, say, social determinant of health-associated infection source is sort of the the living conditions of a lot of our patients. So among the people I treat, uh, of the vast majority are experiencing homelessness, and so there's all sorts of infections that can come come from that life. So if someone's in a crowded or congregate setting, like a prison or a homeless shelter, then things like tuberculosis are common, coronavirus, obviously, and then there's a bunch of other kind of more rare ID-focused things that we think about, um, as well as just sort of, you know, worsening of medical conditions due to, to not having a clean, safe space to, to sort of spend your time. And then probably the third big bucket that I think of are the comorbidities that come along with, with people who have substance use disorder or who inject drugs specifically. So I mentioned HIV as being prevalent in this population. So there's sort of a whole host of opportunistic infections that people can get along with HIV or as a cause of HIV caused by HIV. And then and then if people develop hepatitis C cirrhosis, which hopefully they don't in the future, because I know, but um, obviously having cirrhosis comes with its own, its own set of infectious complications and risk factors. Yeah, wow, that's so that's interesting. And I hadn't really thought of all the different buckets like that and the different sources. And the, mentioning syphilis, I've never seen so much syphilis as when I just started working in an addiction medicine clinic by itself. It was just like every day almost we were having to call the state to, to discuss syphilis treatment and interpretation of tests. You know, one of the things that I, I love about infectious disease and I think is very common in family medicine physicians as well is sort of the focus on prevention. There's lots of great things we know work for preventing a lot of these infections. A small piece of that might be helping people reduce their substance use if that's something that's within their goals. I've heard you all talk in the past about syringe services programs and safer injection practices and, you know, using sterile water. I will say, you know, even in the best case scenario, syringe services program right down the street from our hospital at our university, even people who use clean syringes every single time, don't share, use sterile water, there is still just that risk of infection with a needle going into someone's arm and their bloodstream, sometimes multiple, many times a day, um, even in the best case scenario. And a lot of that sometimes comes along with the, the drugs themselves not being sterile. So can you talk to about that a little bit in terms of contamination of drug itself? Because I think there wasn't there, I don't know if it was a scientific paper or a media paper about heroin being contaminated with feces. I mean, I'm sure this is just very common, but there was some big blurb about it. How commonly do you think that is the source versus just skin flora or bloodborne shared diseases from, you know, peers who are injecting with you? Yeah, I think in at least in the population I'm I'm seeing primarily the issue is really just, you know, needle in skin and even it, you know, even if it's sterilized and cleaned, it's it's still an issue. There was there are sort of like a lot of almost like ID board question type things. Like there was, what is it? Botulism related to black tar heroin that I think was uh, something that happened on the West Coast a couple of years ago. I will say in our sort of internal data in our hospital, like something like 80% of the infections are from Staph aureus or Streptococci. So most of these things are, are skin flora that I think are being inoculated into the skin or into the bloodstream um, directly. There's some other, you know, sort of classic risk factors for specific infections. There's the use of things like uh, lemon juice as a something to help 
dissolved drugs has been associated with candida bloodstream infections. You know, sometimes people will lick the syringe before they inject. And so that's associated with a lot of oral organisms causing bloodstream infections. You know, a lot of that stuff, most of our empiric antibiotics, if someone's sick and in the hospital, treat most of those organisms. And, you know, what I love about ID as well is that when the blood cultures are positive, we have an answer and it's like definitive. I know what the organism is. I know how to treat it. And then I think the real difficulty and the real sort of challenge is now how do I effectively get this infection treated in my patient? Right, then that's the challenge, isn't it? <laughs> that's kind of the dilemma on how to treat people for an adequate duration, not have them leave. And then what if they do leave? And by the way, we I had a patient who had botulism. Very interesting, interesting. patient. Yeah, from heroin contamination. Anyway, that's a conversation for another time. But classic, <laughs> classic board question situation where she presented. You know, a lot of times you can sort of like guess what the practice was when you see the organism. There's some sort of very classic waterborne organisms like some of our non-tuberculous mycobacterium I've seen in people's blood cultures. I think one other just sort of interesting point, uh, and this is sort of based on a lot of chart reviews that I've done for various projects, are I think a lot of people who inject drugs are sort of bacteremic or have bacteria and organisms in their blood blood like often and um, are sort of self-clearing the infections. So it's really common that someone sort of gets brought in for an overdose, let's say, and they get blood cultures in the ER and they're positive. Often they'll, you know, let's say they wake up and feel better and they leave the hospital early without finishing treatment. Two weeks later, they're back for something else and got no treatment and did perfectly fine. Um, so you do see that. I think also it helps that, again, a lot of our patients are are on the younger end with fewer comorbidities and there is a lot more physiologic reserve for a lot of them. That's actually a big factor, we think, in sort of the severity of these infections infections when people come in. You know, my average infectious disease consult, let's say, is like a 70-year-old person on dialysis with many comorbidities and coronary artery disease, you know, they sort of like have a fever and gives them chest pain and they feel horrible and they get brought in from their dialysis unit, you know, within hours of having a fever um, for, let's say, a bloodstream infection. Sort of our younger patients who have a lot of cardiac reserve, you know, they could run five miles, let's say. People can actually live and function with really raging bacterial infections for a while, which doesn't really mean that the infection's, you know, getting treated or anything. In fact, they actually come in and tend to have more disseminated infections. We know that people who inject drugs are a lot more likely to have endocarditis. That's actually one of the Duke criteria, if you remember back to the diagnostic criteria for endocarditis. So being having a history of injection drug use is one of those criteria. And that's kind of why sort of all of the reasons that I'm sure we understand why people avoid coming to the hospital at all costs and sort of putting it off. A lot of people sort of describe putting it off until they're, quote, at death's doorstep or someone brings them in sort of against their will. Yeah, absolutely. You see that all the time for lots of reasons. So what about yes. treatment for these for these infections? What's your general approach compared to, say, your 70-year-old patient on dialysis with coronary arteries? Does it differ at all? Definitely. Yeah, I think so. Let's say our, our patient, you know, is in the hospital now and and um, I feel really blessed that I've been able to set up a system where I'm able to treat people both for their infectious disease and their substance use disorder in our hospital here. And so I think, you know, one sort of bedrock sort of expectation that I go into the room with is like, this person is sort of by definition a non-treatment seeking patient when I see them. And so I think, you know, when I first started learning about addiction medicine, I was very naive. I said, oh, the problem is just a lack of buprenorphine. And 
you know, if I just go in there and give everyone buprenorphine, problem solved, I can cure their infection, all good. I realized mostly through trial and error that that is, you know, very far from the truth. And that's just sort of been sort of iterative learning over over the last couple of years for me is how that is not the truth and uh, how I have to sort of take a different approach. I kind of introduce myself as someone who can help treat their infection as well as their, I usually say I can help you with your withdrawal or your pain rather than specifically saying I'm there to quote, fix your addiction or anything like that. And so I think, you know, really framing things as I want to do what I can to help get this infection treated, cured, so it's out of your life and it doesn't come back. And, you know, if along the way we can use this opportunity to to make some positive life changes for you, then then I want to be able to help in, in whatever way I can. So I think that sort of changes the focus a little bit on, you know, anything I'm doing is really at the service of getting this life-threatening infection treated. And I tell people, if you leave the hospital early, let's say I come back in the morning and you have self-discharged, you know, I'll make sure that we order oral antibiotics to the pharmacy, just really sort of letting people know that we're not going to abandon them um, and that we're sort of in for the long haul, which again, I recognize as sort of a, a privilege I have to work in that sort of environment and that the way our healthcare system is set up is really not for people to have accountability and follow people as during and after hospitalization. Um, but I think for this population where trust and continuity are really important, that's really, really crucial. But I love that you bring that up. That is such a shift for us as addiction providers, because I think we've all been in that mindset. When patients come in, we always think that, well, they're not in treatment because it's a buprenorphine deficiency and we need to just fix that. So, I mean, I think it's a really good point is like what you're talking about is just respecting their autonomy. And yeah, we want to make sure we treat your infection. And I, we see so many patients leaving AMA with these terrible infections because we didn't treat like, I mean, that's why I think what you do is amazing. And we need more programs like that, giving them the opportunity treatment and then linking them to the care when they want it. How many do you see convert to long term treatment? I don't have a lot to compare to. I th- definitely everyone is happy to have their withdrawal treated in the hospital. And whether that's with short-acting opioids or methadone or buprenorphine, you know, that's definitely a given and a necessity to, to really get anywhere with people. I think, you know, unfortunately, based on like the lack of resources around town, sometimes like having a roof over someone's head requires them to be interested, quote unquote, interested in treatment to get into a residential addiction treatment. Um, um, so it's really, again, very like harm reduction-y uh, informed, let's say, and that, again, really, how can we get the, get this infection treated and, and make you feeling better? And, you know, sometimes I try not to be paternalistic. There's definitely times when people's, you know, let's say substance use plans and infectious disease severity are completely incompatible. And so that's where, you know, the motivational interviewing comes in like really hard to <laughs> really try to help, help someone see how like how they want to use drugs and how we need to get this infection treated are not going to go well. But there's no forcing anyone into treatment um, where I practice. And I think, you know, most people do, I'd say majority, I'm not going to give any specific numbers, a majority of people do want to cut down or reduce their use. And definitely almost everybody, except for a few, want to not be homeless and want to have sort of a better life for themselves that, that most of them were experiencing before coming into the hospital. When it comes to sort of treating the infection itself, the simple answer is that there's really no major 
major difference than when I treat an infection in any other patient. You know, it seems obvious, but just like with any other patient, it's really a balance of who's the patient, their life circumstances, their medical comorbidities, and their infection, and sort of how do we match all of those things up and, and try to sort of tailor the most effective plan. And I think where we've run into trouble as a uh, infectious disease community and, you know, probably just general hospitalists as well in the few, in the past is really sort of saying, okay, the textbook says endocarditis needs six weeks of IV vancomycin. You know, I'm going to get my rubber stamp that says six weeks of IV vancomycin and stamp it on your chart. And that's what you got to do. And, you know, you can't go anywhere. So you're going to stay in the hospital the whole time. That's great if the patient wants to do that and the hospital <laughs> is condoning it and like all the things line up. But I will say, and you can probably uh, commiserate, like nobody wants to be in the hospital for that long, like no matter what. <laughs> almost without exception. And so it's really about like, how do we find a relatively, or to be honest, mostly non-inferior treatment plan that allows someone to go to a place that's that's more, let's say, therapeutic to them. You know, there are places that have really interesting models of like in-hospital recovery groups and counseling and peer navigators and stuff like that to take advantage of these sometimes long hospitalizations. In my practice, I do a lot of switching people to oral antibiotics you know, in a relatively swift time point. Do you do that automatically or do you do it when the patient wants to direct discharge? I, the culture here, and this <laughs> is not to call out the culture in Utah, but is it's really difficult to get buy-in from our infectious disease docs to switch to an oral regimen when people want to, want to leave the hospital or we cannot find placement for them at a place where they can continue IV antibiotics and they end up just having nothing, so no salvage therapy at all. So what, how often do you just make that your plan from the beginning? Or is it always a salvage therapy? And how could we help change that culture here? If you dip your toe into infectious disease Twitter at all, you'll see there's a broad range of opinions. But I think the general majority of infectious disease doctors are more moving towards safe to give oral antibiotics for many of the uh, severe infections that we traditionally only gave IV for. And I think, you know, this is where, because honestly, the, the data we have shows that for most of these infections, judicious step down to oral antibiotics is completely safe and effective from an infection standpoint. In our team notes, we have a little area at the bottom where we put sort of an antibiotic contingency plan that's sort of an oral antibiotic to switch to if someone is going to like imminently leave the hospital suddenly. We kind of do that from the first day, even when someone's like in the throes of severe bacteremia, because uh, my approach is really that any antibiotic is generally better than than no antibiotic for a lot of these infections. Know that, you know, endocarditis, if you remember back to med school, you see all these like really old timey pictures of chewed up heart pathology and, you know, all these really horrible complications from like the pre-antibiotic era. And, uh, you know, this is like a 100% fatal condition if, if untreated. I really think the onus is on us to like be, you know, duct taping a bottle of pill of antibiotics in someone's hand as they leave the hospital if they're going to leave. Um, I think there's definitely sort of a older generation maybe or just sort of more conservative way of thinking like, you know, sort of my way or the highway type of approach. Yeah, 
absolutely. And is that just because, well, I mean, assuming it's just because this is the way we do it, you know, we treat with IV for this many weeks. And is there also, or are there also concerns from the community regarding monitoring? Like, oh, well, if I send this person out with this whole bottle of this antibiotic, I have no way of making sure that their kidney function is okay <laughs> or their liver function or if they ever come back. I mean, I'm assuming that's part of the medical legal, you know, yeah. mess that we've gotten ourselves into in the US anyway. For sure. I think there is some research on this, I think, just sort of like surveying infectious disease doctors and sort of why they make the decisions that they do. I think we can make pretty informed and relatively safe plans for most people. So I do try to avoid like antibiotics that require really close blood test monitoring, if at all possible. For instance, doxycycline is one that we can use a lot for soft tissue infections and osteomyelitis that infectious disease doctors are in love with and really requires like no monitoring, no blood test monitoring at least. Yeah, again, it's it's also, I think you have to frame it sort of like someone taking an antibiotic that has a side effect and is unmonitored versus someone taking no antibiotics. You know, we sort of dilute ourselves into thinking the alternative is staying in the hospital and getting IV vancomycin and getting really close monitoring, but that's not the alternative. The alternative is someone running out of the hospital with nothing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you know, David, what the standard is in other countries? Like, do they have a similar approach or do you see a lot more? Um, and is, is that the correct term, salvage therapies? I'm not sure if that's true, but what is the approach, say, in Canada or the UK, Australia, New Zealand, treating these serious bacterial infections in patients who want to direct or who can't stay for six weeks or who won't stay or who don't have other options? Yeah, I think I think other places are a bit more progressive. Definitely, they also have a lot better sort of social safety net, maybe more robust addiction treatment infrastructure for people that might sort of not uh, necessitate the uh, you know choice to leave the hospital early. Can you just dispel like the myth with pick lines are on our PWIDs? How often you run into this that they don't want to place a pick line? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the general like thought that I have is just overall, you know, having a pick line does not cause someone to have addiction, does not force them to inject drugs, and just similarly withholding a pick line from them is not considered drug treatment. Just like detox is not really treatment for opioid use disorder, and I think. You know, everything has to be done with sort of a, a, a risk benefit. There is like qualitative research of people who inject drugs. And I think in general, most people say that it's not a trigger for them to inject into the line. Most people will sort of tell you, you know, I've been injecting for the last 20 years. Like, I don't need this thing here. I can just inject into my arm if I need to. There's a lot of really, you know, novel approaches to this issue all over the country. People who are really sort of studying how to implement buprenorphine along with outpatient parenteral antimicrobial therapy, or OPAT, which is basically getting IV antibiotics through a pick. That's sort of the, the general name for it. There's a pilot study from U- University of Kentucky by Laura Fanucci that showed that it was really feasible and effective preliminarily. And she has a larger study going on right now that, you know, length of hospital stay is a lot shorter. There's also some work out of University of Alabama, Ellen Eaton, where there's sort of like a risk score that people can use to help determine like how risky 
would it be for this person to have a pick for outpatient antibiotics? You know, a lot of it is sort of qualitative, obvious kind of things. Like if someone is not being treated for their opioid use disorder, then maybe that's not a great candidate. If someone is experiencing homelessness, then that's maybe not a great person to go home on IV antibiotics. But I think the sort of hard and fast rule of no pick for anyone who has a history of injection drug uses is definitely dated. There's a systematic review in this art journal called Open Form Infectious Disease that showed really equivalent levels of completion of antibiotics with a pick for people who inject drugs versus non-injection drug or people who don't inject drugs and really no increased rate of pick-related complications. I will say as an ID doctor, there's a huge amount of complications with people getting outpatient IV antibiotics. So we really, or I really, I think most, most of the people I practice with really try to avoid it at all costs. So it's a it's a not a safe intervention even for people who don't inject drugs. And I think you know the jury is out. I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. I don't think you could say every person who injects drugs should get a pick and go out with IV antibiotics. But it sh- certainly shouldn't be a hard no without any thought. So it's all sort of risk benefit. What I don't have a good answer for is like what the legal implications are. I know I've heard of institutions that make patients like sign a waiver saying you know if this pick gets infected, then uh, it's not on us or something like that. Yeah, I think honestly, a lot of it is sort of based in in stigma and sort of a, a lack of understanding. A lot of these questions that just sort of come up about like what's the best antibiotic choice for someone who inject drugs is really often like missing the big picture, which is sort of how do we like help this person so that they don't get this infection again and treat their cravings and whatnot. So that's going to help them be able to adhere to antibiotics and really complete their therapy. Yeah, addressing the um, the root cause, like you said, and we have. I was involved with the program here, and I was very proud, lucky to be part of it. But where residential program purposefully admitted patients who needed ongoing IV antibiotics for serious bacterial infections. So we partnered with the hospital because of a very great hospitalist in the area who set it up. So we would partner with the hospital and admit these folks. They were so sick. They had so many things wrong with them. It was terrifying to be the medical director of that program. But um, they would come to us and then home health would deliver the care just like they would in a home. And we would deliver the the you know substance use treatment, which which is more ideal obviously then these folks going to a sniff where they get no substance use treatment or going yeah or staying in the hospital where they're often stigmatized and bored and have ongoing you know desire to use etc so i don't know that's a model that i i hope is going on more around the world here we struggled with it a little bit just because folks still did a- abandon ship <laughs> we had quite a few leave after the first day or two i think they felt that they were out of the hospital and they they're like i don't want to be here anyway which was i mean they didn't want to be there. There, so that was fine. But then we were left without any plan. That was really challenging for us. That's why I was so excited to read your papers because I was often left as the medical director going, what do I do? What do I do with these folks? Got to pull their pick line and I have nothing to offer them. And I know they were just going to kind of disappear into the city with a serious infection. It felt horrible to do that. Yeah, I think I think making friends with a sort of understanding infectious disease doctor or even maybe hospitalist might be helpful in people's sort of home institutions. You can usually find at least one infectious disease doctor who's uh you know hip to the uh this approach to treating people yeah i think a lot of times we have to 
abandon ship and and switch course. As I kind of mentioned earlier, the, the system's not really set up to do that in a very efficient way. I had someone in December who went residential treatment on IV antibiotics and, you know, started to develop like a little cellulitis around where the pick was going into his arm. And we had it pulled out and ordered him antibi- oral antibiotics to finish his last 10 days of, of treatment. You know, being able to do that is really what makes a huge difference because without an infectious disease doctor or just doctors sort of following them closely who knows what happened in the hospital, you know, that sort of automatically he gets shipped back to the hospital, gets probably taken off of his medication for opioids disorder like mistakenly or that stuff kind of happens all the time and then just sort of like starts things over. So finding, I think, the places in your community that are sort of willing to be flexible, who are, you know, willing to sort of take maybe the patient who's a little more medically complicated than than they feel comfortable with, with a lot of support from outside help is really great. I know we were lamenting on Twitter recently about <laughs> programs, you know, refusing, only wanting like the most pristine, perfect candidate and instead of, you know, the reality, which is like everyone's got a lot of problems and they still need help even if they have a lot of medical problems. Can maybe just mention one other topic that comes up a lot, at least in the the hospital, or there's these new, they're not really new anymore, but they're called long half-life anti- intravenous antibiotics, one called Dalbavancin and one called Aritavancin. And so there's a lot of different kind of dosing regimens for them, but the general gist is that, you know, at a maximum, they can be given once a week. And so that's an option for a lot of people who I would say there's a lot of barriers to getting it, let's say, but you know, if if people can get access and that a nice way to get people IV equivalent antibiotics, often without the need for a pick, at least with a little more flexibility in, in where they get discharged to. That's really cool. Never heard of that. So that's that's great. That's awesome. I mean that's something that we need to know because I can't tell you how many times we end up getting these patients that just show up in our office that were discharged from the hospital and there really isn't an infectious disease doctor or anyone to manage. Paula is the infectious disease doctor or me. <laughs> and we're not very good. <laughs> Look at that. Sort of like what do you do when someone shows up at your clinic, let's say, and they're like, Hey, I, you know, I had to leave the hospital to go use yesterday. They were not treating my pain. You know, what do I do in the clinic? Number one is sort of your basic uh, medical skills, which is like assessing does this person have sepsis in front of me and really sort of getting a sense of like where they are in the course of their treatment for their infection. You know, there's sort of like a range of acuity. There's like someone who hits the door with endocarditis and is like bacteremic still. And then there's someone who's like, you know, in their last week of IV antibiotics, trying to get some gauge of that. Patients are pretty knowledgeable, I would say, about like what they were treated with and what organism they had. Often they know MRSA or sometimes they know like the MRSA that's not as bad, which is like the methicillin susceptible staph aureus. And so I think, you know, just sort of using those triage skills as sort of the first step. And then any information you can gather, I'm not sure if where you all practice is like a closed uh, system where you have access to the hospital's medical records, but, you know, getting some sense of what microbiology might be going on and also what antibiotic they were getting in the hospital can sometimes be a little bit of a clue as well as to, you know, what you might want to treat them with. And I, you know, I won't go through all the specific, you know, what antibiotic for what organism and what type of uh, infection. But suffice to say that, you know, if someone has made the choice or has been coerced into the choice of I have to leave the hospital, we should try to give them antibiotics and and try to treat them in the outpatient setting. um, As long as we don't see any red flags saying, you know, I literally need to call an ambulance and get you sent over right away. They often won't go back. So it's your 
Yeah. You're maybe somewhat informed oral antibiotic versus no antibiotic. You bring up such a good point what you talked about earlier is that some of these people kind of do walk around just kind of bacteremic. All they show up in my office and they don't always look really sick. You know, their vital signs are pretty stable. But sometimes when you can finally access their hospital records and you look and you're like, wow, they were terrible. Maybe only they only had five days of IV antibiotics. And so I feel very intimidated by, man, I'm just putting them on oral. But like you said, it's better than nothing. You know, we do have some really challenging patients, a lot of like socioeconomic factors that if we can get them something. Exactly. I'm hoping like, I I don't know how much you see this, but it just seems I w- I've been dreaming of more bull teams and outreach teams. So using peer peers, especially to just follow people, kind of, especially folks who are experiencing homelessness, kind of follow them to wherever they go. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we had those teams? Do you do you have a team like that? <laughs> <laughs> it would be great. Yes, I I am again I'm very blessed to sort of work in a, a setting where we have both an on-campus syringe services program and um a whole group called the community engagement team that that works there and so fortunately I, if we're lucky a lot of our patients you know if they leave the hospital early before finishing treatment they go two blocks away right to the needle exchange get some clean syringes and the team there will sort of alert me and I do literally put a, a bolo be on the lookout for for some of our patients in our, our weekly meeting and you know they can sort of if they come by to exchange syringes they can just sort of pull them into the, our little clinic space and connect them with me or one of the other doctors with a telehealth connection. So we really try to decentralize the healthcare system for these patients who really just don't work well with, with our brick and mortar healthcare system. Think, sure, is it is it better if I can be there and do a physical exam on somebody? Yes, but you know, it's also good to be able to talk to a doctor at the very least, even if I can't physically be there all the time. Yeah, absolutely. What about, um, I don't know if this is premature, because you probably still have a lot to talk about in this particular topic, but are there any gems or pearls you can give us for treating infections in people that not don't necessarily inject drugs, but use drugs, things that you see predominantly for people who either snort drugs or chew or just are substance users in general that we should be aware of from an addiction medicine and infectious disease perspective? Yeah, I I definitely take care of patients who just happen to have severe infections and also opioid use disorder, but who don't inject opioids. One person who we hypothesized maybe had like a, a staph aureus carriage in their nose and was snorting a lot of drugs and potentially caused some like translocation and, and bacteremia through that route. I think, you know, people with chronic liver disease, either from alcohol or virus, viral hepatitis, are sort of at risk for a lot of different infections. Things like uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is is common among people with really advanced cirrhosis. Great. Thank you. And I, I'm interested. I mean, no, no, we could have you for a whole nother episode on HIV and people with substance use disorder. But is there anything, I, I mean, I, I know what I want you to say, but is there anything in, particularly, in particular you want listeners to know about that population, folks with HIV who also use substances and the general approach? Yeah, I think the general approach is similar, which is like saying, first and foremost, I want to treat your HIV. That's going to save your life. It's also going to protect those around you and make sex feel a lot 
safer and better for you, not having that sort of hanging over your head as far as being infectious to other people, and really sort of trying to focus on the positives of, of getting into treatment for HIV and then offering substance use disorder treatment. Um, I think that's sort of another thing that hopefully I think it for the most part has changed as of like many, maybe 10 years ago, is just doctors being a lot more medication first for, for HIV. I think the antiretrovirals are now have such a high barrier to resistance and such a um, you know low good side effect profile that the the benefits of treating right away and early, even in someone who has active substance use, sort of far outweigh like, you know, making people kind of prove themselves to you before starting them on antiretrovirals. And I think, you know, there is some some observational research showing that people in the hospital with substance use who get started on ART are more likely to follow up in the outpatient setting. I'll have to ask my fellow ID doctors to cover their ears for this, but I think most of our antiretrovirals today are like extremely tolerant to to inadherence. And so I think, you know, I still tell people like take every single pill, like, you know, your life depends on it. It's really important. I don't tell anyone to take only 80 or 90% of them. For the most part, people do do very well and actually can tolerate quite a bit of non-adherence and still do well. I think the other thing is just, you know, thinking about the risk benefits. So prescribing someone a month of antiretrovirals when they leave the hospital, if that sort of, you know, one extra person to follow up in clinic, I'd say it's worth it, even if a lot of people still don't follow up. There's really not a lot of harm in giving someone a month of antiretrovirals. It's not going to cause them to develop, you know, pan-resistant HIV that's untreatable. That's really sort of like months and long periods of of poor adherence that lead to that. That's really great to know. I we have a lot of folks who come in with HIV, obviously, who have not been as adherent to their regimen if they've been in active use and have a lot of challenges. And it's always, I don't know, I think it just incites a lot of anxiety into primary care doctors. We just haven't been, a lot of us, some of us, that's not true. A lot of providers really competently and confidently treat HIV. But I know I'd always be like, ah, call Clinic 1A. Can I restart it right away? What do I need to do before restarting? And I'd call and they'll be so casual. Oh, yeah, just restart. Get the <laughs> lab, send them up to us in a month, you know, in two weeks. And I'm all sweating bullets trying to think yeah. of what I should do with their meds, you know. Yeah, I think we've all been instilled with, you know, the fear of God about not not messing up antiretrovirals, maybe more than we should. Uh, I think, you know, the same uh, similar approach for, for hepatitis C, there's some different, you know, some nuances with that in that I would say it's a short treatment so I try to really stress adherence and I do try to wait at least until someone has like a pretty solid plan, like, you know, they're going to be somewhere or there's at least someone who can hold on to their meds. There's many, 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 many barriers to actually getting them the meds and getting insurance or somebody to pay for it. But um, as far as treating hep C, we know that, that that can also be very effective in people who still have active use. And there's also some research showing that you know, just like with HIV, treating someone's hep C might sort of help engage them with the healthcare system. And so that's a big a big part of what we do at our syringe exchange is sort of, we have syringes, people come in, they are engaging with the healthcare system, they're getting tested, they have a doctor there sometimes, and that's sort of like a gateway of a uh, culturally competent medical care for people to, to get treated. I couldn't agree well, amazing. more. Well, what else? What have we what have we missed that's really important in terms of the evaluation and management? And You know, one other thing that I try to do in the hospital is 
use it as an opportunity to to do as much preventive medicine as I can. There's, you know, very scant uh, interaction sometimes with the healthcare system and people who inject drugs. And so, you know, we try to get people vaccinated for things that they're due for like hepatitis A and hepatitis B. You know, we try to connect people to prep while they're in the hospital if we can prescribe it upon leaving, getting people started on HIV medication if they're out of treatment. Very obvious, but extremely underutilized is making sure that people get naloxone when they leave the hospital. I think there's a lot of people trying to figure out the best way to do this. I've heard of some places that have like harm reduction goodie baggies that they give to people in the hospital. You know, I personally bring over some boxes of Narcan from our syringe exchange and like put it next to the bedside of people. Um, Usually the first time I meet them if I can. And then sometimes the nurses want to keep it like locked up somewhere, (laughs) Um, not wanting there to be like open or unaccounted for medications in the room. It is really important to have it highly easily accessible for people. We know that if someone leaves the hospital early, you know, that's really the the single most dangerous time in their life for an overdose. Uh, if, if people are discharged from the hospital, there's like a four times the odds of overdose in the two days after leaving. And if they leave earlier against medical advice, then it's like eight times the odds of overdose. I actually just gave a talk to our nursing department really to try to drive home this point. You know, I think for a lot of people who are like purely hospital providers, they're in that silo. To them, it's like, oh, this patient who is being a nuisance is walking out the door. Man, bad choice, but see you later. And we really need to shift the paradigm to like, you know, that person is like walking into the inferno of flames and we need to do whatever we can to to give them a soft landing on the way out. Absolutely. And the risk. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up that risk. That Those are terrible odds. And I think also pointing out that the risk of overdose in the hospital exists as well. If people do not have their withdrawal adequately addressed and their cravings. But, you know, I think a lot of times we we don't do a good job of that. And folks are in a way forced to continue to using uh, in addition to experiencing their severe medical problems and often mental health anguish from whatever else is going on. And so that's a big risk as well. So I love that you bring that Absolutely. And I think, you know, in addition to really treating people's, you know, opioid withdrawal, for a lot of us addiction medicine doctors, you know, that's pretty straightforward with, you know, using one of our opioid tools in our tool belt, but also just sort of realizing that there's a lot of other symptoms that people are experiencing, really severe anxiety, you know, just feeling trapped, not sleeping well, uh, feeling sort of persecuted by the people around them. You know, I, you know, I use benzodiazepines for a lot of people who are in the hospital and just sort of like feeling a lot of really extreme anxiety. It doesn't have to be like a long-term thing. You're getting it for life, but just to sort of help people, people comfortable through this really difficult time. You know, a lot of our patients are also using benzodiazepines on the street as well. So sometimes it's really to treat double withdrawal. Yeah, and absolutely and absolutely recognize that many of the folks who are using substances have medical trauma for lots of reasons because they've been treated poorly by the medical system multiple times or they've been traumatized by medical people uh just like they have other authoritative and authoritarian people in the community. So not only are they there without their supply, without their community, they feel sick, they're in withdrawal, they have anxiety, dysphoria, hypercutifia, they're triggered by what may have happened times and times previously to that. So we need to be aware of that and hopefully foster more trauma-informed care systems in hospitals, uh, which at the very best are not pleasant for those of us who are resilient and have lots of 
Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. That was absolutely fantastic. We really enjoyed it. We'll put in the show notes links to your articles so people can reference them. Thank you again. Thank you so much. We learned so much. And this was a fantastic episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's been really great. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.